So I'd like to maybe um, start tonight with a wonderful reading from Patrick Overton. He says, when I come to the edge of all that I know and I step off into the abyss of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. That I will find some firm ground to stand upon or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all that I know and I stand up against the abyss, the abyss of the unknown, and I take that leap into the unknown, I trust one of two things will happen, that I will find some firm ground to stand upon or I will be taught to fly. I want to congratulate you in this uh, first full day of practice. Um, yeah, this is different than our day-to-day life. And we know um, this is not our, for most of us, our usual schedule, getting up early and alternating between sitting and movement, being in silence, being with our own mind and body and heart. And it often takes a a few days to to settle. And so it's very normal if, um, actually, as Bhante Gunaratana, he kind of describes the mind in this way when you meditate at first. He says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. He says it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Perhaps it's always been this way, but you just never noticed. I love how he says it's not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. Does it sound familiar? Anyone? Want to raise your hand? Look around the room, you've got good company. Yeah, really want to normalize this. Yeah. Hafiz, a Persian poet, says, if you sit very quietly, you may discover a ruby that is buried inside. We're learning to sit with ourselves, and there's actually an incredibly beautiful poem by a Chilean poet uh, called, his name is Pablo Neruda. The poem's name is Keeping Quiet, and I won't read the whole poem, but I want to just recite a few of the lines, but it speaks about what would happen if the whole world could just stop for 12 seconds. And to me, uh, what I'm about to recite to you really describes the value of why we stop and become present. He says, if we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might 
interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us when everything seems to be dead in winter and later proves to be alive. I mean, that's one of the most beautiful descriptions of meditation. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps this huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. We've entered into the huge silence together. I just want to just acknowledge that to perhaps begin to understand ourselves, to begin to make some peace, begin to develop some understanding. It's a beautiful reading from Saraha that says that within my body, are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. And so we've begun that pilgrimage. I'd like to maybe just say that um, 39 years ago, I went on a pilgrimage to Southeast Asia, and I temporarily ordained as a Buddhist monk in the forest tradition in a very remote area of Burma where the major source of transportation was ox cart. I'll never forget as I was uh, getting my head shaved the monastics were reciting in Pali a particular chant over and over. In Pali it goes, Ketha Loma Nakadanta Tiso, Matam Naru Ati Atamesam Wekam, Hariyam Yakanankalo Makampi Yakam Papatham, Antham Andaguna Udari and Keritam Matalungam, Pe Tamte Mampo Bo Lohitamte Do Medo. Over and over, reciting this chant. And then I asked uh, one of the monks, what does that mean in English? Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, oil of the joints, and urine. <laughs> you make a rap song out of that, huh? <laughs> the 32 parts of the body meditation. That this is a, almost a universal common practice when you ordain that uh, it is recited these 32 parts of the body meditation. And often for many monastics, that's really their, in some ways, uh, for many, their sole orientation towards this practice. But um, unbeknownst to me, when I ordained with my teacher, the Venerable Tungpulu Toya Kabaye Siero, 
which is quite a mouthful, Tangpulu Toya Kabaye Siero. Means the world peace forest teacher from Ghost Mountain. <laughs> and the Tampulu Sero was a, a very uh, long time practitioner of the 32 parts of the body meditation, and that was one of the very first meditations that um, I was introduced to. And so tonight I want to talk about um, the, you know, this 32 parts of the body meditation for tomorrow we're going to begin formally the practice. You'll find uh, maybe when you leave the hall later that on a chair there's a single sheet that has the list of the 32 parts and a little bit of description on how to practice with it. And then you can bring it in for tomorrow morning because we will begin each morning for the next few days uh, with chanting these parts. We'll sit for 30 minutes in silence for the early morning sit before breakfast. In the last 15 minutes, we'll do the chanting that I'll explain more tomorrow. But I also want to first speak about what brings us to practice because I think, you know, that's important. And, um, and I trust that for many of us here, you know, what brings us to practice is um, a multitude of different things and perhaps under the category, and it's a broad one, of um, dukkha. That's just the Pali word for... Um, it can be translated in a number of ways from suffering to stress to distress. Um, that uh, there's a circle on a wheel and there's a little indentation. It's not quite round as you go down the road and the the duke, the duke. Life is kind of like that. So I was re- reflecting today on perhaps some of the reasons that maybe brought some of us here a longing to get to know oneself more, to find some balance, perhaps living with an illness, coming here with a lot of grief or feeling anxiety or stress or depression, wanting to understand more about the meaning of life, perhaps physical pain, emotional pain, feelings like that I just don't belong anywhere, feeling separate, isolated, disconnected. What is this life? We're all going to die, etc. and etc. Did I touch upon some? <laughs> Maybe wanting to improve our health and well-being. We can throw that in there too. But why do we want to prove our health and well-being? Because what is this life? Jane Kenyon, she writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. And he ate cereal, sweet milk, and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I love, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day just like this day, but one day I know 
it will be otherwise. One day I know it will be otherwise. And this is the story of um, Siddhartha Gautama's journey and perhaps all of our journeys that we can recognize you know, what brings us to practice. Um, is these realities of life. What brought me to the practice? What brought me to the practice was a lot of death and confusion, despair. I also experienced some prejudice early in my life. And this longing to want to be accepted, to be connected. But I love this story of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became known as the Buddha, and it's a, such a human story. And I can relate to it, and I trust uh, for many of us we can relate to some parts of it. We might not relate to being born as a prince or a princess, Though maybe our parents told us so. But the, the Siddhartha Gautama was born in a, um, a noble family destined to become a king. And um, there's a lot of mythology around the story that he lived a very sheltered life. For his father was told by some ancient wise people looking at the signs of the baby, looking how long the ears are and the arms and different signs and... There was five of them there, and four said he's going to become a great king. But one said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. And somehow the king, his dad, was really concerned about that and didn't want his son to become a Buddha, wanted his son to become a great king. And perhaps out of that concern, the king intentionally shielded his son from seeing any signs of strife in life. It was palaces for each season, all the latest iPhones and whatever else, and the gadgets of the day. And you could say that Siddhartha kind of lived in a sensually pleasing dream world for 29 years and kind of just lost in this dream, pleasurable world. And at the age of 29, the curiosity arose inside him about realizing he had never been really out into the kingdom and wanted to go out. So he contacted his Uber driver, his charioteers person, and um, they went out um, to, into the kingdom. And, and something happened in that first outing where maybe some of this dream world kind of just kind of dissolved for a few moments. And he happened to see an old person, maybe someone looking like me. <laughs> Or older person, and gray hair, and you know, and definitely the look of age. And Siddhartha said this to Chana, who was the charioteer's driver. And Chana said, This is an old person, and um, if you live long enough, you will get old. There's no escape from aging. And so this had a kind of an impact on Siddhartha because it's kind of hard to imagine, but. You know, when I sometimes look at my own life and how long I've lived in a dream world, uh, uh, well, maybe it's not just in mythology. Like there was a sense of waking up to all of a sudden this recognition of aging that somehow did not dawn on Siddhartha before. So this was a, a, a message 
the story goes, he went back to the, to the palace and went out again another time later and came across a person that was very ill. And again, Siddhartha noticed this. Again, this dream world beginning to dissolve. What is this? And Chana said, this is a person that's ill. No one can escape from illness. Siddhartha was um, dis- very disturbed by this. His lust for life was getting a little less now for all these wonderful things and went back to the palace and just what it was, you know, began to think about this life. And the story goes, went out again. Out into the kingdom with Chana and came across a corpse, a dead body. And this very much shocked Siddhartha. Siddhartha saw this body was not moving, it was not breathing. There was discoloration in the skin and actually, actually began to put his hand on the body and felt the coldness. Coldness. I think of that because it's very visceral when I touched my father's body. There's a coldness to it. It penetrated Siddhartha deeply. And Chana said, no one can escape from death. Siddhartha came back to the palace and was very forlorn and, and just, what is all this wealth and wonderful things if it's not going to last? And was very, very upset. And didn't know what to do. But the story goes, he went out one more time and he came across an an ascetic walking down the path. And as soon as Siddhartha saw this person, he asked Chana, right, like, who is this person? Because he knew that this was a very unusual person. He had never seen a person like this before. This person had a presence, a calmness, a simplicity, a humility. And something that maybe this person knows something. So Siddhartha asked Chana, who is this person? And Chana said, this is um, a a yogi, a a meditator, a person that is dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when Siddhartha heard that, he, 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 there was some, joy or excitement that like wow like there's actually people that dedicate their lives to understand what life is that that's the only thing that makes sense these are called and it's kind of a very funny name perhaps for us to hear they're called the four heavenly messengers because it may not seem so heavenly aging illness and death but that last one is is the possibility of awakening. And, and as they're awakening us up to the realities of life, perhaps maybe dissolving some of the dream world that uh, we've lived in.
Kind of like that moment, I don't know how many of you saw The Matrix when uh, Neo took the green pill and uh, began to wake up to the realities of what actually is here. Any of you see The Matrix? I'm not selling it. Okay, so you, it's a science fiction story and he takes his pill and all of a sudden begins to see reality in a very clear and very frightening way, having lived in a dream world. So after Siddhartha came across this wandering ascetic, he realized that this is what he must do as well. That was the only thing that made sense to him. He had in Pali, there's a word, it's called samwega. And that means when you realize that death can come at any moment, it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? So that type of awareness arose inside him and he knew that he could not follow in his father's ways of becoming a king. Even at the time he had a wife and and a soon-to-be child. He knew that he had to leave the palace and to wander into the forest and to meditate. He also knew that his wife and child would be cared for and customs of that day as a prince and their family. And it's actually very nice to know, I'm going to kind of speed it up a bit and come back, that after his awakening, he came back to the palace. He actually was a family man. He came back to his wife, to his son, and he gave them the noble inheritance, and they too uh, awakened. The very beautiful story. I love that part that he came back to share what he had learned. And I trust every one of us here has met these four heavenly messengers because I don't think you could be here if, to meditate if you haven't met them. And some, of course, you know, you look in the mirror, there's the truth of aging, right? And, um, you know, and I trust we've had some sicknesses, maybe colds, and some of us maybe serious illnesses. And I'm, I'm sure that for many of us... Um, We've uh, known someone that has died. And some of us have known about death for an early time. I I remember when I was four years old, I had my first realization that I was going to die. My life changed, really, after that moment. Riding in the back seat of a parent's car, going down Quarry Hill Road, visiting my grandma. I remember saying this to my mother, and she said, oh, don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, long, long time. (laughs) And I don't hold any grudges against her, but I knew it wasn't the truth. And what is a long time? I remember my teacher on his 80th birthday, I was saying, Ciero, how long has 80 years been? And he smiled, and he went like this. (laughs) 80 years. My wife tells me a story. She teaches mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it was the first evening, and it's often customary that we go around the circle in the class and hear what brings us to the class. And one gentleman said, "Um, I'm here because um, the last thing I remember was my 21st birthday, and I'm now 47. I was like, where did these years go? Where did they go? 
So perhaps we've all been touched. How many of us here remember the first time we realized that we were going to die? Yeah. So some of us, not everyone. And for those that aren't, maybe you're just hearing about it right now for the first time. (laughs) Sorry, sorry to break the news, but yep, the death rate is one per person on the planet. It's always been that way. It will be that way. And I trust that each of us, of course, has met this fourth heavenly messenger. Maybe it's a person that we know. Maybe it was like Mother Teresa, like, like somebody we didn't know, but how they lived their life invited us to want to go inside that maybe there's another way. I'll, I'll never forget, I'll just share briefly, um, one of my very first heavenly me- messengers, his name was Bill Jackson. I had flunked out of college and was readmitted back on warning because I was, I was just so lost in my early years of life. I actually, in the first few years, I majored in getting drunk, using psychedelic drugs, and trying to have girlfriends. And um, I got the letter from the school saying you're you're out, and got readmitted back on warning. My mother begged me, "Isn't there something that would interest you?" And I ended up in this class called the Wisdom of the East: Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. But I'll never forget, and I don't know, something just drew me. I had always had some interest in the East, and so I decided to take this class out of desperation. I didn't know what else to do. But I'll never forget walking into that class. My professor was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. I had never had a professor like that ever before in my life. I felt like I entered into Hogwarts. And most of the professors were sitting behind their desk in suit jacket and ties. He had jeans on and sitting in a full lotus on top of his desk. So that was impressive. But more impressive was his presence. There was a calmness, there was a kindness, there was a humility. I, I, I never met a person like I don't I don't know what he knew, but I had that sense I wanted to know what he knew. There was something about him that was extraordinary. His presence. I'm so grateful for Bill, who I actually met later in Facebook. Believe it or not, he had uh, finished a professorship at Purdue and. Um, I got a chance to tell him, to thank him, how much he meant to me. The first book he introduced was the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu, and I couldn't believe that someone had written about life in this way, and and I was just swept away with the Tao. And I kept on reading over and over again this one Epigram, there's 81 of them, and epigram 47 is this, no, I'm paraphrasing, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And I read this over and over and over again, trying to understand what did this mean. And gradually, um, I began to understand that if I wanted to know something, I need to begin to look inside. And I had never thought about that in my entire life up to that moment. That's how lost I was and confused. There's a beautiful reading from Carl Jung that says, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. 
who look outside dreams, who look inside awakens. That is such a beautiful line. Who look outside dreams, who look inside awakens. That's the story of the Buddha's awakening, looking inside. I trust that you've also met some four heavenly messengers at this point in my life. I've met so many. But I invite you to reflect upon this, maybe later, walking. Like, who have been, who's been your messengers that have helped brought you onto the path? Each of you could be sitting up here telling that story, because each of you have been touched in your own way that brought you onto the path. Who look outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. Reflecting on what brings us to this practice, it's an inspiration, gets us on the cushion. So in November 1980, I ordained as a forest monk for a temporary period of time with Tampulucero, and as I mentioned, he was really into the bodily practices, the 32 parts of the body, the four primary elements, and the mindfulness of death. These are all found in the first foundation of mindfulness, the mindfulness of the body. There's actually six different practices, the awareness of the breath, the postures, the clear comprehension of mindfulness in different day-to-day activities, the 32 parts of the body meditation, the meditation on the four primary elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. And lastly, this profound uh, and very graphic contemplation on nine different stages of decomposition beginning on the first day of death until the body turns into dust. We actually offer these types of retreats here. Uh, it's called the Marana Sati, the mindfulness of death. And we actually was taught a retreat last um, year with Eugene Cash here. But the 32 parts of the body and these bodily practices is something that Tampulucero was really into and taught. And so I um, got deeply involved in, in doing these practices. and particularly the 32 parts of the body, though each evening during the middle watch of the night, which is from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., we would often go to the cemeteries. And this is in remote places in Burma where you can find bones on the ground, and it's not such a neat American type of cemetery. But I think, you know, looking back, since I had been dealing with a lot of death in my life that led to a lot of confusion. I I lost a younger brother, a best friend, a grandfather early in life. And this really led me into a place of a lot of despair and confusion. And so I think uh, getting into meditation and and going to Burma and meeting this teacher was no coincidence in many ways in these body practices around the body and death and the elements was what I really needed at that time. And, you know, I finally came to a place where everyone is actually talking about death, not just pushing it aside. And so this, this was like my tribe. 
So I was introduced to the 32 parts of the body in 1980. And, you know, eventually um, I um, left the monastery and um, I lived mostly um, as a lay person and attended for the monk. I was ordained temporarily for some months, but then was lived with the monks very closely for uh, many years. And after leaving the monastery, I got involved in mindfulness-based stress reduction, and one of the primary practices that we use is called the body scan, which to me, um, the 32 parts of the body is the original body scan. And so during these years of teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction, the body scan, I also practiced the 32 parts of the body uh, with myself off and on for 26 years. It's so funny, I, I guess I can say that now because I'm 65. And um, so on and off for 26 years in one day, so that would make it 2006, <laughs> um, I had this realization that the 32 parts of the body was like, like a high beam light went off in my head and heart. Like, wait a minute, this practice is incredible. This is an incredible practice. It took me 26 years to get it. It's actually very, I wish I could blow this up. Someday we'll have a little PowerPoint here. But this is a picture of a Gary Larson cartoon. And it's a picture of a group of cows in a pasture. And they're eating grass. Because that's what cows do. But one day this one cow had an epiphany. And it starts telling the other cows, Hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. We're eating grass. Wait a minute, we're eating grass. You know, and so this epiphany of insight. And so in the same way, I feel like there was an epiphany within me of, wait a minute, we have a body. We have a body. We have a body. It was a, a similar, like, I mean, I live in this thing, but all of a sudden I realized I have a body. I mean, and I've had situations in my life where I knew I had a body, like getting constipated or whatever, but there was something about this that really woke me up this, that this body meditation is unbelievable. And, yeah, and, I, and, I, and I have this desire inside me to want to begin to share this. And I asked Mary Grace, thank you so much. Can we do this up at the rock? And also there's a longer version of doing this practice that I, you know, Mary Grace was the founding and guiding teacher of Insight Santa Cruz. And I said, hey, Mary Grace, I'd like to offer the long version. She said, go for it. It's, it's 33 weeks long, eight months to do the 32 parts of the body. I'll explain uh, the method of that uh, later. I thank you for that support. <laughs> and um, actually, this is what Tungpulu Sero has to say about the 32 parts of the body. He says that the 32 parts of the body meditation is the most eminent among all of the satipatthanas. This is the foundations of mindfulness. It's the most eminent among all the Satipatthanas, this meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation, and you will find out. <laughs> um, it is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. Very beautiful. This meditation is unlike any other kind of meditation, and it is brought to light and taught only in the times when the Buddhas arise. And so I mentioned to you earlier the parts of the body, I won't uh, recite that again, but we could say there's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid parts. And it's actually interesting, to, and of course, 
we know there's many, many more parts than these 32. And it's actually interesting to say that um, in, in the last um, you know, 25 years, uh, science con continues to find new parts in the body. Yeah, you didn't realize you had three arms and two heads. No, I'm okay. But um, th there's a new... Um, there's a, there was a new layer found in the human cornea that's 15 microns thick. It's called the duos layer. Um, so this was something new that was found in the eye. And then recently there was a ligament found in the knee, an anterior lateral ligament that even though they had done so many dissections on bodies for so many years, this was just discovered recently. Then they're talking about scientists have identified a new human organ hiding in plain sight in a discovery they hope that could help understand the spread of cancer within the body. Remarkably, it's called the interstitium, I-N-T-E-R-S-T-I-T-I-U-M, has previously gone unnoticed despite being one of the largest organs in the human body. So you can do a little internet search and all that stuff. But it's very interesting just to, you know, see that, um, you know, science is still, you know, we think about outer space, the, the inner space of the body, this, this great pilgrimage within. So I know that this is a very interesting assortment of parts. Head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, bone marrow, and kidneys, and so forth. And so the question I'm often asked is, why these parts? And I've combed quite a bit of the canonical literature and the commentaries, and don't know. <laughs> don't know why these parts, or why this order. Don't know. But from my own practice, having practiced this now for many years, and I think in honoring the tradition, I like to use these parts because this, you know, this has been practiced for nearly 2,600 years. I like to honor those parts, but I've also come to understand through my experience that these parts are like gateways or ambassadors, doorways into all of the other parts of the body. So there's not any part that's not included. We may not explicitly name a particular part, but for example, my wife has um, diabetes, and so I'm working with the uh, digestive area. The, the, um, the um, pancreas is not named, but no doubt as she moves into the abdominal area, she, she naturally, the pancreas calls to her. So, so as we work with these parts, also being aware of what gets called to you. These are just doorways into the body. In regards to this order, it is, there seems to be though some logic. And so for example, the first five, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin. These are the parts when we look at people, this is what we see. We see hair of the head, hair of the body, fingernails, toenails, teeth, and skin. And um, it's also very interesting to see that the cosmetic industry knows about this too. And it's a multi-billion dollar industry fussing with head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. And of course, these parts can make us very happy 
or make us very sad. So it's very important for us in, in, in the 32 parts of the body is beginning to penetrate into these parts and to understand and experience them as they are. How many of us here have got a haircut and then later didn't like it? Anybody? Okay, so look around. So what the 32 parts of the body has to say about head hair, and we'll be meditating on it tomorrow, is that head hair is thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells, and they protrude from the head. So it's like reading a medical dictionary. And it's function and definition, it, 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 um, it, it um, offers some protection from ultraviolet light, violet light, and it also has some thermal regulation. It keeps us warm. That's what head hair is. So when my partner and I, when we come back from, well, I, actually, I don't go to the barber anymore, but we say, how's your thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells today? And so it's kind of like, but like, you can see like the cosmetic industry and the, the corruption and distortion creating such an enchantment of thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells. And what we do with it and the sadness or the joy that it creates. All of these parts. So we're going to be penetrating into the body just as it is. We're not going to say that the body's gross. We're not going to say that it's beautiful. It's, it's what it is, and we'll leave it up to us in the practice. But I remember one woman, she was having some large intestine problems, and now they're working well, and one of her great insights at the end of the retreat was, I love my large intestine. We don't think of the large intestine until it's not working well. You think all the fuss that we do, uh, a friend of mine, the very first year I taught the 32 parts of the body, she was a former uh, chief financial officer. And so she put out an Excel sheet, kind of figuring out on an estimate, well, how much money actually have I spent on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin up to the age of 67? So she has a little detailed Excel sheet of like how much she spent on head hair, like shampoo, conditioners, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments, body hair, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, teeth, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electric toothbrushes, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, skin, lotion, moisturizer, cleaner, cleanser, makeup, peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer, freezing, skin cancer, surgeries, and so forth. Anyways, it's quite a lot of money. Now, of course, some of this is very important, health-related, but a lot of it is, um, I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> Necessary. Thank you. And... Um, and again, with this order, it's very interesting. So the first five have to do with um, the outside of the body, and then, the, then we unzipper the skin, and we go into the inside, the flesh or the muscles, the sinew or the connective tissue, and it goes to the bones, and then the bone marrow. And then at first, it takes kind of a leap, bone marrow to kidneys. What's the relationship there? 
Well, it turns out that bone marrow is a blood um, production and the, and the kidneys is, is blood purification. So there's some interest. But then what do we do with this one? Did the Buddha have a sense of humor? Why is the feces next to the brain? But then again, we have now in, later in, in science saying that digest, digestive system is the second brain. So anyways, we'll have time to reflect on that and more. There's a very traditional way of practicing this meditation, and it's called, uh, kind of an interesting name, it's called the Sevenfold Skill in Learning. It comes from the Vasudhimaga, the Path of Purification. But it's really a prescription, and, and we'll be using this prescription to guide practice starting tomorrow. So one of the interesting things is that we will actually chant these parts verbally. And the, the rationale behind it is as we chant it verbally, it sets up the conditions for us to know it mentally in our mind. And then to begin to focus on the color of the particular part that we're concentrating upon, its shape, its location, its direction, is it above or below the waist, or both above and below the waist, like skin is? And what is its delimitation, or its boundary, or what it borders? And of course, we'll also um, give the definition and function, which helps us to really understand each of these parts. We practice the 32 parts of the body to grow with wisdom and compassion. It's another doorway into this body, mind, and heart. And it's very beautiful. The Buddha has a very poetic um, phrase saying that within this fathom long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its origin, its cessation, the pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. A fathom is a maritime measurement. It's about two meters, six feet. The, really, the whole Four Noble Truths, the whole teachings of the Dharma are right in those very poetic, very beautiful phrases that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its beginning, its ending, its pathway to freedom is found within this fathom-long body. This practice is both it's, it's, it's a very interesting practice in that it's very personal and very impersonal. They both can be there. For example, um, regarding some health challenges I've had, now I'm doing well, but the, um, on the impersonal side, my prostate, without me giving it permission, started getting bigger and bigger and bigger it began to block my urine flow. I was doing fine one day and I felt a pain in my leg. It's sciatic pain. Turns out that a cyst grew in the facet joint in my lumbar spine. I didn't ask that cyst to grow there. It just did it itself. Now better. My thyroid decided to not produce enough of the hormones and I have hypothyroidism and I have to take thyroid replacement therapy. My hair of my head, I used to have a lot of hair. I used to have a ponytail. And, and it's um, not there now. 
So there's this impersonal, this body reeks of impersonality. It's ownerless, it's selfless. It's like, like there's not much control. We have this idea, I have some control, but um, maybe a little, maybe not. But on the personal side, this is the body that we live in, right? Since the moment of our conception that grew this body, there's a poet, Martha Elliott, that she says that our history is here inside our body. Our body is our storehouse of all of our learnings and thoughts and experiences. So as we sit with the body, this is the vehicle that we live inside of, it will evoke at times our personal stories, our narratives, our life. I mean, how could it not? So it's very interesting practice in that in certain aspects it kind of reeks of anatta, of this non-self, impersonal aspect, and then it also has all these stories. Concentrating on Hedir one time, an old story arose in my mind of a memory of when I was 13 years old and I got bar misford that night, that day. And that night was the party and I was the star of the party. We used to have a saying, today I'm a fountain pen. So you got a lot of fountain pens as a gift. But um, that night, I wanted to look good. And I got some Brill Cream from home. Brill Cream is like this oily tube that you put in your hair to do whatever. And so I thought if a little dab will do you, a lot of dab will do you, and I emptied the whole tube into my hair. And you could cook French fries in my hair now. I mean, it was so soaking wet with oil. And I, I remember putting my head under the sink and trying to wash it out and my clothes are wet and I, I, I was so shamed. I felt humiliated. Oh, head here. Thin, flexible shafts of hardened cells protruding from the head. But at 13 years old, I didn't know that. I wanted to look good, whatever look good meant. I wanted to get loved. So our stories are here. They're inside us. They're powerful stories. I have a friend who's a physician and she did the 32 parts of the body and she would write notes about what came up for her and so I just want to read one piece on feces. So she says, oh, here comes the memory. There's no stopping it now. I was very young and I looked up to my older brother and admired him so much. I would do whatever he told me. Well, one time he told me he had a club with neighborhood boys, and of course I wanted to be in that club. And of course he didn't want me to be in that club, so he told me that the only way I could get into that club was to hold a piece of human shit in your bare hands. (laughs) Clearly he thought I would never do it. He was so wrong. (laughs) Soon after, he told me this, my opportunity came. And I caught my feces in my hand before it touched the water. It was a perfect specimen for this, not wet or drippy. And I walked through the house looking for my brother with the feces in my hand. Finally, I found him outside in the backyard and I showed it to him. I was proud, I was triumphant. 
I thought he would be so impressed, and all he said was, great, go put that thing back, will you? <laughs> and so I did, and as far as I know, that club never met, and I never heard another thing about it. I think I felt like I had proven myself to my brother that I could keep up with him and do whatever he could do, but I had a deeper suspicion that I had been tricked, and I felt so ashamed. This memory still fills me with a sense of shame. How could I have not seen through it and done something so disgusting to please someone else? I think I was about five years old. It is a small and silly thing on one hand, but an act that I did that took away my dignity and there was no looking out for me. Where the hell were my parents? Feces. So anyways, it goes on and on, but you can see we sit with ourselves. Our life comes up and so we begin to meet it. They begin to acknowledge it. So there's these aspects of the personal and the impersonal as we work with ourselves. So, um, I'm looking at the time, and I think I'm going to pause. There's more to be said, and um, it'll come later. But I will just maybe invite you to sit for a moment and just breathe in and out. And I'll just end with with a reading. I offer these words tonight as a way to perk your interest in this fathom-long body. Tsongkhapa says that the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body, it is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as like a a tiny splash of a raindrop. A thing of beauty that disappears even as it just about comes into being. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. May all beings discover the gateways into the heart and may there be peace. And so just to say thank you so much for your attention and that um, the nine o'clock closing of the night is, I, didn't, I don't know if we explicitly said this before, but it, it's kind of a, an added I-S-H to it, nine-ish. So, I'm going to continue on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.